Hi, I'm Fran Kelly from Radio National with a special bonus episode of The Party Room today. It's a party room live at Mardi Gras Fair Day in Sydney. Here's my podcast partner in crime, Patricia Carvelis, joined live on stage by ABC News presenter Jeremy Fernandez. Hello and welcome to this... I'll just let you clap because it's the best thing that's happened all day to me. Thank you and welcome to this very special recording of the party room here at Fair Day. I want to acknowledge the, that we're on the land of the, uh, the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Now, you're probably wondering if I've hidden Fran somewhere like under the stage. She is rather lean, so I probably could... Unfortunately, and I don't want anyone to cry or to provide counselling to anyone, but Fran is not here. She's on a very special assignment that's very secret squirrel business that I'm not allowed to reveal, although if you ask me later outside, I'll probably tell you, Um, (laughs) because I'm not a very discreet person. I'm a journalist. Uh, I'm here, though, and I didn't want to be the only gay in the village uh, because, well, I did, actually, but then I thought... That might not be as interesting. So I've invited Jeremy Fernandez to be my <laughs> to be my co-pilot. Thank you. Now Jeremy is like everyone's favourite gay at the ABC. Um, There's a lot handsome, of us. Let me tell you. He's delightful. <laughs> he's knowledgeable. Everyone likes to hang out with him. So I can think of no one else I'd want to party with than you, Jeremy. Thank you. Delightful to be here. Happy Mardi Gras. How exciting. And you're, you're kind of like Fran, but you don't boss me around as much. So that's, no, that's, right. that's good yes. too. So it's, or wake up as early. Uh, or wake up as early. Yeah. Um, so we're going to have a chat. And there's another secret part of today which we have not revealed in our communications. We have two political guests that will join us on stage. Trent Zimmerman um, of Liberal Party fame of crossing the floor recently. Um, <laughs> and Senator Jenny McAllister is here too for the Labor side of politics. I'm glad you're clapping for them because they are very excellent parliamentarians and I can vouch for them. I've spent much time with both of them, uh, grilling them, being impolite to them and generally doing what I do. Uh, But first, Jeremy and I are going to party together. Jeremy, sit down. Thank you very much. I'm being bossed around already. Now, we are recording this, yeah. (laughs) See, see, it's the thing. It's finally my chance. Uh, And when she listens to this on her secret assignment, she'll be like... So, Jeremy, thank you for filling in for Fran, although no one really ever fills in for Fran, let's be honest. Um, No one puts Fran in the corner. Uh, We're going to talk just a little bit about politics, which is why you've all come here. And what do you want to know about, Jeremy? Well, so, you know, the past... I mean, it's been a really, really messy week in politics. I can objectively say, as journalists, as citizens, it's been a bit ridiculous, a bit comical, and... With the whole religious discrimination bill, I couldn't work out at some stage who was wedging who. Yeah. What was actually going on there? Well, it was a, bit, it was a giant wedgie for everyone. There was, like, wedgies everywhere, which are very 90s wedgies, which is how the debate felt to me too, and that's a very pointed point from me. I felt like I was in a time warp a little mm. bit sometimes, like, whoa, here we are again. So, backtrack. We had the marriage equality vote, of course, and at the end of that, Malcolm Turnbull, and Trent remembers it well, uh, promised the religious right in your own party that he would uh, review the religious laws and have a look at if there is religious discrimination in our country. Now, he did that. Philip Ruddock did the review, and uh, that review (laughs) didn't find widespread discrimination against people of faith. 
But when Scott Morrison became Prime Minister, he became, he made it really his thing, right? And he took to the election that he would reform the laws. And uh, something inconvenient happened in that Ruddock review, which is that it also uh, was able to reveal that actually discrimination already happens under our current laws. So gay and lesbian students, queer students, trans students, queer teachers are currently discriminated against our laws. So that was inconvenient. Do you all remember the Wentworth by-election? That's when Scott Morrison had to promise that he was going to remove that discrimination against the gay kids, right? And, and that then became a promise at the same time as this religious freedoms. He then didn't act on that for a really long time and it sort of went on and on. Everyone's like, what's going to happen there with the gay kids? Um, aren't we going to do that? And so the moderates were able to push uh, and, and extract some commitment from Scott Morrison that he was going to remove that discrimination at the same time as enacting his religious discrimination bill. Uh, what then happened, which is, I think, the game changer in this debate, and I don't, I don't think Trent Zimmerman will disagree with me, was that when the government um, explained what that would look like, it looked a little bit like discrimination still. So transgen trans students were still to be discriminated against under that change. And that really blew everything up. And it looked like the wedge that you talk of, right? Because this became an issue for Labor. Uh, Labor's constituency are, two, are, are Catholic schools. I mean, let's not forget Labor is, has some issues as well where it has to straddle like all these different constituencies. So while Scott Morrison, I think, was trying to make it difficult for Anthony Albanese, he ended up upsetting his own backbench. And uh, people like Trent Zimmerman, and there were a couple of others were not able to accept the discrimination that would continue for trans students. And that was a really a, an important pivotal moment, I think, in our parliament. So, yeah, his own party split on this. And while he was trying, I think, to split the Labor Party, he split his own party because he didn't deliver on the promise he gave, which is that he would dis remove discrimination on the basis of gender and sexual orientation. And that became very messy in the parliament. There are so many people on all sides here who are wounded by this, particularly, I think, of the kids who, you know, are kind of the subject of the discussion and not really a part of it. Is this all over now? I mean, we're coming up to an election. This is not going to get passed. It's over. Will it come back in the next term? It has to. Yeah, it will. What will be interesting, though, is the election outcome will determine where it goes. So if Scott Morrison is re-elected and a lot of people think, oh, he's on the nose, well, who knows, right? Elections are very unpredictable, so he could still win. I think that what could happen then is that actually you might see that uh, ultimately he will be able to say he has a mandate to go forward with his plan if he's able to win. If he's not... The question will be, and I can't wait to ask Jenny McAllister this, what does Labor do, right? If they win government, what do they do on this particular, you know, form of discrimination against queer students, but also teachers? And then what do they do on religious discrimination? So it hasn't gone away. And uh, the Prime Minister says he wants to campaign on it. I think he probably will in certain Labor seats where it's where there is a religious constituency. But I just don't think this is going to be a big issue in the election. I really don't. I don't think, you know, even religious people, it's the first thing on their mind. I think cost of living is on people's mind, the management of the pandemic. The national jobs. security is turned into a thing now as well, right? These are the th themes that people are thinking about. I don't know if they're going to think, you know, 
I'm, this is my number one voting issue. Perhaps for some, but I don't think it's a motivator for a lot of people. Let's talk polls okay. uh, and how unreliable they are. The latest news poll shows that Labor has a 10-point lead, two-party preferred, over the coalition. You put that alongside the New South Wales by-election results from Super Saturday. Pretty disappointing result for the Liberal Party. Where does that leave us for the federal election? What does all that tell us about where we're headed in the next few months? I think that the um, by-elections in New South Wales are a real warning shot to the Liberal Party. Yes, state issues are different to federal issues, blah, blah, blah. Sure. But there's brand damage that's going on here. And the Liberal brand is a brand that's in trouble in New South Wales. We know that from those results. And the smart Liberals know that too. <laughs> they absolutely know that. And so I think the seat of Warringah is the most interesting there, um, where, you know, you've, you've you basically, you know, you've got like an incumbent independent, um, you've got, sorry, in, in Wentworth, I think Wentworth's going to be in trouble. I think Trent Zimmerman, I'm, I'm sorry to say this in front of you, but I think your seat is obviously one, given the state result in that seat, where there is genuine, you know, trouble brewing. So I think watch that space, particularly the, the rise of the independents. And they are striking, you know, they're, they're communicating with voters who are small L liberals who are frustrated in a way that's quite compelling at the moment. And it's making lots of liberals nervous. So they wouldn't necessarily shift to either of the major parties, but then they funnel towards these independents. And these independents are really well funded. And a lot of them standing on a climate kind of platform, right? What impact is that going to have on the balance in the next parliament? Well, it could be a hung parliament. And is that likely, do you think? Oh, I think it's a, there is a high chance. Mm. I mean, anyone who predicts the election now is lying to you. And after the last election, I don't do that. Yeah. Um, I, I'm still burnt from, from that experience. I will always say, though, that in my case, I was very much guided by the public and the private polling, which showed that the, the Labor Party was way ahead that's all I had to go by. I didn't do vox pops with everyone in Australia. I can't. And so I was going by that and it was wrong. So I think to, to make assumptions about the outcome of the election is, is just disingenuous with people. But there is a mood at the moment. There's a frustration with the government. The government knows it. The polling is demonstrating it. And so it's about whether they are prepared to take a risk with the opposition, because that's what elections are at the end. People feel like they may be taking a risk. And that's what Scott Morrison's trying to do now, make people very nervous, very, very nervous. Is it working? I think at the edges it probably is. Uh, have we got time for one more question? I'm really curious so. about this situation with WA. I grew up in WA, uh, went to uni and high school in Perth. Um, I've got family there, haven't been able to get in. How long is it since you went um, to WA? I was last in WA in June when the border closed. Um, so it was open for a brief period in 2021. Um, the Labor brand is very, very strong under Mark McGowan in WA. How much is that going to influence the federal result when WA is the strongest state for the coalition? The best way to analyse WA for me is the fact that the Prime Minister suddenly stopped criticising the border closure. In the most bizarre about-face I've seen in politics for some time, where all of a sudden Mark McGowan dumped the reopening date because of Omicron, and instead of, like, 
kicking Mark McGowan, which I would have assumed, based on the politics at that stage of, of the argument that had been made by the Liberals, that would happen. That didn't happen. The Prime Minister was like, that's, that's their call. It's their business. You do you. You do you <laughs> over there. And I thought, wow, you are really nervous, right? Because that was not the argument that the Liberals had been making. They were... Can't, like they were arguing for an open border policy at this stage and all of a sudden there was a dramatic retreat. That's because Mark McGowan is popular. I think Mark McGowan um, will be running very strongly against Scott Morrison. He's almost like the opposition leader, you know, you know, sub out Anthony Albanese. Mark McGowan will be playing a very... Very, very pointed in his messaging. And there are some, you know, has luck. There are, there's some serious seat action going on in WA and I think that that's a place where Labor can make inroads and again, it's going possibly, if there's not a landslide to Labor, it might be very tight. So the Liberals might find themselves in a position where they do have to negotiate with a handful of independents. So while the Prime Minister keeps talking about the Green Labor Alliance, and fair enough, he wants to make the point about what's happened in the past, what is he going to do if he has to negotiate with a whole bunch of independents who want stronger ambitions for 2030 emissions reductions targets, uh, religious discrimination bill? They might not be so into that. There's all sorts of compromises he might also have to make. So, you know, watch that space, yeah? It can be a very interesting few months. Yeah. yeah. Great. Now, I have to duck away. Do you? Yeah. Uh, so... I've always loved Jeremy because he's one of the kindest, most compassionate people at the ABC. He has more heart than any other um, news presenter that I've ever encountered, and I say that. Now he's my age too, so I like him a little more. <laughs> All right, Jeremy, come back. Yep. See you later. See you soon. Now, this is, of course, the Party Room podcast, which you usually listen in your ears to. So just like, given I'm kind of sweaty and it's a hot, fair day, close your eyes and just pretend that you're on a nice, cool walk. And I'm bringing to the stage Senator Jenny McAllister for Labor. Hello. 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 And Trent Zimmerman, um, who you will know from a very delirious interview he did with me at 5am after crossing the floor, uh, which was a very emotional morning. So I'm just going to take you to that morning, Trent Zimmerman. I turn up to Parliament House and you're all still in there. You're all broken. You literally were all broken after all night staying up to vote on religious discrimination and the, uh, the um, legislation in relation to trans and, and gay children. You did cross the floor, and, not, and more than some of the others did too, on a number of issues. You told me it was one of the most dis difficult decisions of your career. Why was that so? Uh, because I think crossing the floor is always a hard decision because your instinct is to be a team player. Uh, but... Um, in retrospect, it, it really wasn't that hard, frankly, because uh, the issues that we were debating really went to the core of who I am and what I believe. And uh, if you can't cross the floor on that, then then uh, what are you going to cross the floor on? And uh, it was a weird and long night. Um, it's not often that Parliament sits right through the night. Uh, and um, look, I've got no regrets. It was the right thing to do uh, because uh, I had concerns about uh, some aspects of the Religious Discrimination Act itself, uh, particularly the Statement of Beliefs Clause. And uh, then I had concerns about the fact that in trying to reverse uh, discrimination in one part of the Sex Discrimination Act in relation to school children based on sexuality, not to include gender identity, not to include trans kids, just sent the most appalling message. And uh, that wasn't something I was prepared to tolerate. Uh, but the other aspect of the um, debate where 
actually parted company with, with Labor and supported the independents was that uh, I also thought it was the opportunity to address the discrimination in the act, the SDA against teachers. And in some ways, that's actually the bigger issue um, because there are teachers today, um, not thousands, but enough that should cause us concern, teachers today being sacked because of their sexuality, uh, including friends of mine, people that I know, people that I went to school with. And uh, that is a big unresolved issue that I think we still have to confront and, and fix. Okay, so Jenny, pointy question to you. So Labor, I do think, was getting wedged and, you know, then we saw Labor vote essentially for the Religious Discrimination Act. Um, you did want to remove all the discrimination, trans and gay, gay kids, but not the teachers. And Trent made the point to me when I interviewed him that Labor didn't take a stand on that. In fact, you were using the same language as a political party that you, that your party, not you, but your party was using about trans kids. Let's just review it. It might have unintended consequences, which I always wonder, what might they be? So maybe just before we begin to acknowledge Trent's role in this, because he did play a leadership role, not just in crossing the floor, but I think early on in the discussion about this issue and the consequence of you being willing to articulate your concerns about the approach opened up some space for other people to determine their own position both in your own party and on the crossbench I think and it opened up the possibility of getting a political outcome that was better than what would be suggested if we just thought that the whole thing was going to be sailing through with uh, total support from your party room and I do think that that made a difference. Um, on the specific question of the teachers, um, we went into you know, what you describe as a wedge. The way that we actually have learnt to approach most of the wedges from the Morrison government, you, what you need to do... This conversation sounds very weird at this point. <laughs> what do you do when you see said wedge? This is what I think. I think you... You sit down and you pull your underwear <laughs> out. Oh, my God, I'm going to get wedged. Um, that's right, take a seat. Um, you... In my view, the thing to do is to acknowledge that there might be different views within the community, but then to sit down and to start to think what are the principles that we will use to uh, work our way through this. And that's not usually an electoral calculation. It is a first principles analysis about what do we believe. Um, on this question, Labor is the party that has probably done the most um, in national politics to drive anti-discrimination law. Whitlam on the Race Discrimination Act, um, Hawke on the Sex Discrimination Act, Keating on the Disability Discrimination Act and then Gillard in uh, legislating to protect uh, gay and lesbian people um, from discrimination within the Sex Discrimination Act. So we've got a, a big legacy to protect and our baseline position was that we weren't going to accept anything that wound back the protections that had been established in religious uh, sorry in discrimination law more generally but our second um, principle was to acknowledge that there are communities of faith that experience discrimination particularly minority communities and we do think that responding to uh, that gap in the existing architecture for discrimination law was something that we needed to do. So I guess we went into the debate with two principles. Uh, no wind back for existing protections, um, 
and let us see what we can do to include people of faith in the anti-discrimination regime. On the question of teachers, uh, our view is this. We respect and accept that the preferential hiring principle. If you are a Catholic school, you may wish to hire people from your faith community to establish a Catholic teaching environment, and that's true for the other religions for a Jewish school. But that's not the same as having the right to discriminate against people simply for who they are. And our underlying position is that we do think that we ought to remove the existing exemptions that provide for a quite wide latitude for those institutions and say, yes, preferential hiring, that's accepted, but no one should be sacked simply for becoming pregnant or having IVF or any other number of things. Then why don't These you things do it ought now? to be protected. Because the legal framework depends on the Sex Discrimination Act, but also the Fair Work Act, and then there is a bunch of case law that sits around both of those acts, and our view was that the bill that was put before us was put on the table 24 hours before it was debated. It actually is complex the way that um, the employment law interacts with discrimination law. That's why, presumably, the so issue was sent off to the Australian Law Reform Commission back in 2019. Prime so Minister Morrison halted that and we felt that actually they should complete that work. So will Labor go to the election and promise to remove discrimination against gay teachers? We have made that commitment, actually, last week. And, when, and when will you deliver it, though? In the first term. Trent? Well, <laughs> I'd like it done now. Um, you, but your party is not yeah. in favour of your position, Correct. right? And this is the vexed position you're in. Yeah, I know. And um, my personal... Well, firstly, uh, in terms of the parties, it's almost now a bipartisan approach in the sense that this issue's uh, going to be looked at by the ALRC, the Law Reform Commission. Um, my perspective is, is that we could do it now that it's a relatively simple amendment to the Sex Discrimination Act. Um, and, uh, and I would have liked that to have happened, although, frankly, because the whole bill has been discontinued, if I can put it that way, um, it uh, wouldn't have seen the, the law change. But, um, but my personal commitment is to continue the stand that I took in the last two weeks. Uh, and uh, I do think these are matters of conscience. I frankly think this should be a conscience vote, as it has been in the past, like on the Sex Discrimination Act for the Coalition. Um, but I would vote exactly the same way that I did in the last two weeks in any vote in the next parliament. So I want to zoom out now. I don't want to only talk about the sort of queer issues that have hit the parliament, although great timing for mm. the Mardi Gras Fair Day. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know. Happy Mardi Gras, everyone. Happy Mardi Gras. Let's talk about discrimination. Although I'm a bit um, worried, Patricia, because... Um, Erica Betts might discover after today that there are quite a few homosexuals in the ABC. Oh. <laughs> Thank goodness there's not more estimates. Uh, look, actually, Trent, if you could is. just, oh. <laughs> if you could, if you could keep quiet that I'm gay, okay. I'd really like that. I didn't know until today. I mean, <laughs> just don't let anyone know. No. Discreet. Um, Although I have had colleagues of yours, which people will find an interesting anecdote, say, I didn't even know you were a lesbian. You don't look like a lesbian. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I'm like, you should, you should get around. Lesbians, there's all types of 
of lesbians. And then I'm just like, park that car, Vellis. All right. Just get the story. Yeah. And I want to get the story here. Let's talk about the election. It could be any time. Trent Zimmerman, uh, you are in one of those vulnerable seats. Are you feeling nervous? Um, I don't take it for granted by any stretch. And uh, North Sydney is a seat that was famously held by Ted Mack for many years. Uh, I, I would say to be a little bit pointed that I think that the type of independence that we're talking about today are very different from Ted Mack, who was the type of independent where I don't think anyone really picked him politically. He, he genuinely was a, a centrist. And the independents that we're seeing now um, are um, independents of the major party, but it's really evolving into a, a new political movement uh, uh, that we're seeing. And therefore, I wonder how independent they really are becoming. But um, but no, certainly I don't take it for granted. I think it's going to be a tough battle in North Sydney, as it will be in a number of other seats. And uh, I've had strong independents run against me before in my first election, um, but I think this is probably the most organised challenge I will have had. Uh, and, and I don't discount the Labor Party in North Sydney. They've actually, uh, I shouldn't say this, but they've actually selected probably the strongest candidate they have for, for, for many generations. So. Look at you spricking your opposition. <laughs> if you keep going like that, you're going to get yes, into all sorts I'm of trouble. I'm going to talk myself out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> now, Jenny McAllister... That being said, there are lots of reasons for voting against yes. the <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, It one, was inevitable. Vote one trend is what he's trying to say to you. But, you know. but Jenny, last election, Labor was on the cusp of a potential victory on massive change you were going to deliver for the country. Uh, your election was not delivered to you. It was a very sad time for your colleagues and you. Um, you've said that the Prime Minister has stuffed up the pandemic management, quarantine, rapid tests. Given all of that, if that is right, then you have to win, don't you? I think, uh, as you've pointed to, any assumptions about winning are always a, a grave error when you're, in fact, contesting an election. But if you election. don't win, it will be on your party. Like, how could you possibly, given what the failures that you've mapped out, how could you possibly not be able to win this next election? And, and who will be responsible? What, because it's been seen as a very small target strategy. Will it be that you've made yourselves irrelevant? Look, I don't think we need to go to the election post-mortem at this point oh. when we have not even begun. I like to get ahead of stories. Sure, sure, but it's quite a long way ahead, right? Um, look, I think we go into this election with a having experienced a very unusual period in the parliament. Uh, the, the pandemic has changed the way people experienced politics. It put enormous pressure on families, on communities, but also on the political system. We took the view very early on that the way we would deal with that was to be constructive. We were actually facing a national crisis. It was a crisis of uncertain scale and scope. It potentially had very significant health impacts for the community and economically. We said we will offer constructive support. There was a period when that was accepted, I think, and dealt with in good faith, but it didn't last very long, to be honest. And in your conversation earlier with Jeremy, I was reflecting on the decision the Prime Minister made to stop working constructively in COAG, uh, to actually start picking fights with all sorts of state premiers, actually, uh, not just the Labor ones. And I think that was a, 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 a terrible error of judgment, not in the national interest um, and possibly not in the Prime Minister's interest either, because I think that during this period where we were confronting something that for many people was very frightening, we actually needed people to look 
at the national interest, not at narrow political interest. It's a long way around of saying I think that that is one of the key thematic issues for this campaign. Which candidate will put themselves forward and promise to act in the national interest rather than in the narrow political interest? And I don't think Scott Morrison's track record on that really stands up to scrutiny. So let's talk about national security. Trent Zimmerman. I mean, I said I didn't want to make it too pointy, but I can't help it when you're next to me. <laughs> That's right. So Channel RuPaul. Look over there, it's Jeremy Fernandez. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to sit right back down. <laughs> I'm the biggest gay in the village right here now. <laughs> let me, let uh, me ask you this. Yep. Do you really think that Anthony Albanese is the Communist Party of China's candidate? Do you really think that? And do you really believe that this is constructive for our country to be talking like this? about the two major parties and either side could win at this very critical time? Um, well, I think there's a nuance to the answer on this. So I do think that uh, there is uh, considerable evidence that the uh, government of China would uh, be quite happy if there was a change of government. Uh, do I doubt Anthony Albanese's loyalty to Australia? Absolutely not. And why should we care what the Chinese government wants? This um, is our democracy. So no, no, I know, I know, but I think, I think there are, I think there are China, implications because I do think that uh, we have and uh, we don't often name and talk about individual countries in this context, but we do see, uh, to use the lingo, um, state actors increasingly trying to influence, be it in Australia or in Europe and other parts of the world, um, and not necessarily the same state actors in the, that context, um, election outcomes in democratic countries. and. Uh, I do think that that is an issue that uh, democracies around the world are confronting to protect their, their very democratic institutions. So, uh, so I've, I've um, again, without naming countries, seen uh, how active uh, the diplomatic representatives in some countries can be in, to, in their diasporas. Uh, and uh, I think that that can have an influence. So, uh, so I think we're right to be cautious and alert. Uh, to, to some of the challenges that democracies are facing everywhere, including in Australia. It would be naive not to think so. But, but as the ASIO boss told us, that's like equal opportunity. Didn't you use that language? Uh, you know, if you're a state actor, you're looking to infiltrate any political party that may have influence. Um, I actually think that we've seen a, a higher degree of, of activity uh, and I think that that's also been made possible, frankly, by... Uh, by uh, modern technology. I mean, there wasn't a Facebook where you could have bots pretending to be real people influencing views and elections, as we've seen. Um, I probably spent COVID watching too many crime dramas on Netflix, but um, or ABC iView. Um, but uh, but um, well saved, well yeah, saved. Yeah, actually, you don't have enough crime dramas on ABC. Raise iView, it, the managing directors. Yes, here. I will. I will. Um, but. Um, um, but I do, <laughs> yeah. Um, and thankfully, with that indexation, which was a great decision, I have to say, on its way, um, maybe you can have some more crime dramas, uh, at least some more Nordic crime dramas. They're good. Um, but uh, but look, I do think that the environment's changed partly because technology is facilitating that. Is a serious answer. Jenny, you are actually on the committee that looks at these issues. It looks like national security is being, you know, ramped up as a big election issue. Are you nervous about what the ramifications of that might be? Does it sort of have sort of Tampa September 11 vibes for you? The comparison I've heard is the time 
Kim Beasley looked poised to win an election and then all of a sudden national security became a dominant issue and Labor never won. Let me put out the way I think about it from a first principles perspective. Of course, protecting our democratic institutions from interference has to be a first order priority for government. And of course, there are a range of actors that seek to intervene in our national politics. It's actually not confined to one country and you know, it's also not confined to one side of politics at all. The most important thing is that where a bipartisan position can be established to push back on that, to reject it, to say that our democratic politics is sovereign and must not be interfered with, that's a terrific outcome. And so my question to people in the Liberal Party, in particular to the Prime Minister, is why would you manufacture a division on that question where none exists? Because in fact, it matters that we send a signal to people who would interfere in our politics, that we're united in resisting it. It also matters to our security partners, our closest um, partners in the region and more broadly, that actually uh, there is a consensus in Australian politics about the things that we need to do to establish uh, a secure environment in our region and to make sure we continue to have a region that runs on the rules-based order. I don't see how it helps our national interest at all to create false divisions based on no evidence in relation to those questions, but it obviously does help someone politically. It helps the Prime Minister distract attention from a whole range of other failures in other policy areas and I think that the public needs to be on high alert for not just that scare campaign but all of the ones that are going to come after it because that is obviously the tactic at this point in the cycle. So May, it's going to be a fun time May, it's going to be a real party, a democ you know, democracy sausages, everyone can bring their own pencils, did you hear about that? You can take your own pencil, um, which I think is very exciting that you can take your own pencil. <laughs> if you've got COVID, you can call vote which is very exciting too. And then both of you are actually up for re-election. How key is this election and what will the issue be? Will it be a referendum, Trent, on the handling of the pandemic? Uh, look, I think it's actually the key issue. Well, I, I never think elections are decided by single issues. Uh, People have their own shopping basket of issues they pursue. And in electorate like mine, um, undoubtedly, climate change uh, is one of the biggest issues. And um, I've sought to reflect the views of my own electorate and the work that I did last year to fight for net zero. But, but uh, I think that the overarching issue is going to be how Australia emerges from the pandemic. Um, pandemic will still be with us, inevitably, but how we emerge from it, um, both from a health perspective and, and economically. And I'm quite confident about Australia's capacity to do that. Um, you know, I think that we have seen over the last two years the best and worst of democracies around the world. And uh, I think Australia, along with our cousins in New Zealand, have really stacked up um, as a civil society, with all its faults, as a political society as well, in terms of managing the pandemic. And uh, at times we are fond of beating up on ourselves, but I'll tell you what, I'd prefer to be in Australia than the United States over the last two years, any day of the week. So. Um, under, under, um, and in other parts of Europe as well, frankly, for that matter. So, Jenny, Labor would like it to be a referendum on the handling of the um, pandemic. 
I don't actually think that reflects our position. Uh, we do want to talk about the handling of the pandemic because we think that the community was let down at many points and the burden of effort fell to the state and territory premiers. However, the real question is how we build out of it. It exposed a whole lot of flaws and faults in our social and economic arrangements. It exposed people who were vulnerable because of the insecure nature of their employment. It, it exposed shortcomings in our manufacturing and supply chain arrangements. It exposed shortcomings in the healthcare arrangements for some vulnerable populations, and I'm thinking particularly of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in remote communities. Those things need to be addressed. There was talk very early on from the Prime Minister about a snapback. We don't want to snap back to the conditions that left us so vulnerable to that pandemic and left so many vulnerable communities exposed. We actually need a program to build a stronger, more cohesive um, and more economically diverse uh, Australia. And that is the dis distinction I think that Australia wants to, that Labor wants to fight on. I want to thank you both, not just for talking to me on stage, being recorded, me promising that it's going to be really friendly and then <laughs> taking some of my pointy questions. I but never thought I'd spend quality time with you in a sauna. <laughs> <laughs> it is Mardi Gras trends. <laughs> and as I said to you before, like, it's okay, we can be pansexual. Um, uh, what I do want to also thank you for is how collegiate you've been to each other because I think that increasingly it's feedback we get at the party room too. People are desperate to hear politicians talk respectfully to each other and about issues rather than always kind of sounding um, adversarial and mean-spirited. And neither of you are mean-spirited people. So thank you for coming to my party. Thank you. You can take... Some seats now. Okay, great, great. Weren't were you promising margaritas? Uh, oh, yeah, I promised margaritas with no intention of delivering them. <laughs> uh, which sort of says something about my... <laughs> I probably would. I'm very good at avoiding questions, but not now. Jeremy Fernandez is back. Now, the last... Whenever I do these party room lives with Fran, we always take questions from the audience at the end, and we've got, like, kind of... 10 to 15 minutes left before we say farewell to you all. Thanks for enduring the heat in here. It's allegedly air-conditioned. Um, and I've not seen a lot of evidence of that yet. I have stood in front of the air-conditioner, it's great, but you've actually got to be on top of it. Um, we're going to take your questions. Anyone want to put their hand up and throw a question It's a, a roving microphone. Oh, yeah, there, there is. Thank yeah. you for Jeremy knowing more than me about this event. Hello. Hello. Hi, Patricia. Hi, Jeremy. I'm Joel. I'm one of the volunteers here at Mardi Gras. Excellent. You see from Have you been up yeah, since for volunteers? Yes, yes. You, you did retweet my, my tweet this morning. Don't worry. You know, yeah. we're, we're, we follow each other on Twitter. Yeah. Um, my number one question would be, with everything that's happening in politics, everything that, you know, it's not, you know, as, as you described, it's been a few rough weeks and that's just been how many sitting weeks? Two? That was just two. Why would young people want to get into politics what's you know we want to see the younger generation actually you know not trying to kick jenny and trent out of their seats already but at some point we need the younger generation to step up from your perspectives of journalists why would young people want to step into a public role i 
don't want to discourage young people from getting involved because I think that if you don't if you don't front up and if you don't turn up, then our democracy is weaker. But I don't think it's an appealing place to come, and I can't lie about that. But at the same time, the more you have people that put their hands up, the culture changes. And I think the best example of that has been this year, watching Brittany Higgins, for instance, um, you know, break the business model of that place. Now, I worked in Canberra for a decade in the press gallery. I saw some really appalling things. Um, I'm not alleging I saw what what has transpired here, but I saw some very appalling things. And the culture when I was there was that it's just normal and you just don't say anything and you don't do anything. And it always made me uncomfortable as a journalist. So it's good young staffers like her taking a stand and politicians also who have taken a stand and um, journalists writing the stories and not being told by male editors that they're not legitimate stories anymore. Uh, so I reckon the culture's already changing and actually quite fast. So increasingly it is worth getting involved and the more people that do that, it will change. And if they don't get involved, it won't change. So it's kind of vexed, um, you know, the numbers are changing and the culture is changing and young people come with a kind of level of accountability to the way that they feel about these issues in all parts of the political spectrum. And I think it's a good thing. And that's all I have to say. Jeremy? Um, I think back, just to pull it away from politics for a moment as an example, I've interviewed a lot of people in leadership. And one thing that really strikes me is the way people talk about why they got into those positions, those really senior positions in organisations, in charities, um, government. And quite often you'll get the answer, they were just a bunch of losers at the top and I had to do something. It's not because they wanted to be there. It's because they just couldn't tolerate this thick layer of poop kind of, <laughs> you know, kind of governing the way we speak to each other, the way we um, think of governance about accountability. Um, and that's, I think, part of the issue. I think that really comes to your kind of point that people don't necessarily want to be there, but they just can't tolerate what is there right now. And you put that together with a whole bunch of young people of colour, young women, who are incredibly articulate, partly because media has proliferated so much, you know, social media, broadcast media, whatever. You know, I started back at the news channel back in the baby days, and I've seen the number of people who we got on in those very early days who are now excellent spokespeople for the things that matter to them. So I think we've got, that's part of the rapid change is that people are able to articulate themselves and see themselves in those positions as spokespeople and to precipitate a sort of momentum to get that change happening. I agree with Jeremy. <laughs> I'm gonna have more parties with Jeremy. Yeah, more margaritas, um, please. Any other questions? Oh, I'm getting hands, how exciting. Um, it always fascinates me when I see people like you who are absolutely passionate about politics and I think, yeah, they're change agents underneath. But what keeps you being journalists and not wanting to jump ship and get right into politics yourself? Is it things like, we saw what happened to Maxine McHugh, is that the risk? Is it just too risky to jump? I'm not interested in being a candidate, for real. So yes, I'm very interested in politics and I'm very interested in, the, in our country and in policy and in the way that policy affects real people's lives because my own lived experience is that 
good social policy changed my own life. I'm an orphan. I was on a welfare payment that meant that I could participate fully in the world that if we, we didn't have a good welfare state, I wouldn't have. I went to good public schools that built me up and teachers who would do extra work at the end of their days because they knew how hungry I was to be educated and to do well. And I believe that that is the best of our country, right? But I want to be a journalist. I want to hold people to account. And some, some journalists become, you know, Zoe, for instance, is running and is an independent. That's her right. She was a former journalist. I don't have that aspiration. It's not because I'm scared. I am... Journalism is brutal. Um, I'm, I see it as just as brutal as politics, to be honest. So I feel like I'm very much scrutinised. So it's not fear for me. It's that the job I, I'm doing, I find just as important as making the laws, if you like. So I have zero political aspirations. I will never be a candidate. I will not work for a political party. And you can hold me to it. This is now recorded. I won't. Um, same for me. I have absolutely no desire to go into politics. It's not that I don't respect the job and the, uh, w you know, what it takes to, to work in politics. I just have absolutely no desire. I have been a swinging voter all my life, um, proudly. I just don't kind of really nail my colours to any particular mast. For me, it's all about fairness. I'm also a product of a welfare state. My family moved to Australia when I was 13 years old and we really kind of... Mum was a checkout operator at Woolies. Um, Dad was a student and we, and, you know, they worked kind of odd jobs here and there. I am where I am today because we were able to kind of get all sorts of assistance from the government and the, the assistance that that provided at a really critical time in the family for us is never lost on us about repaying that to the taxpayer and becoming a productive member of society. And I think, you know, the story of what it means to be a recipient of those benefits of a society like we have set up I kind of am quite happy to kind of look at all the different parties and see what they have to offer. Um, I have no desire to kind of jump ship. I know people who have, you know, good friends who've run for the Liberals. You know, one's a Liberal MP, one's a Labor MP. Zoe, whom we used to work with, is an independent. Um, and, you know, good luck to them. But I just don't see... And I also just can't stand schmoozing either. Oh, so. yeah. <laughs> it's hard to make it COVID safe now, too. No. Yeah. Uh, all right, another question here-ish? Uh, hey, PK, Jeremy, thanks so much. It was terrific. Um, I think that the past few years we've seen like a lot of attention on integrity and transparency, particularly from um, independents like Zali Segal that have championed sort of improving the, or uplifting the quality of that in politics. Do you think, given the, I think the events of the past couple of weeks with the donation scandal in Warringah, um, that sort of juxtaposed against, I guess, the, the dark money that's flowing through the major parties... I guess, do you think that the, the tide is turning on transparency and integrity to a point where it will become a focal point for voters going into, even if it's not this election, the following election and after that, until we do see a real uplift in our standards of integrity and transparency in government? I don't know if people really understand, PK, and to you as well. I really don't know if people understand that much. I certainly don't. Um, I find it an incredibly opaque kind of process about how all this happens. And I think until we get that clarity, it's very difficult for a journalist to even broadcast this sort of stuff and kind of get people to understand and then act on it um, from an electoral point of view. Pico? Um, I absolutely agree, and the system is too opaque. What I do think is changing, though, is that one, pe one thing that people do not like, average voters, is... Um, corruption and waste. B 
because they know they're working hard and if they think that there are people uh, gaming the system to help their political mates or um, not being accountable, that makes people very angry. So I think that there is going to be an increased focus and I think a National Integrity Commission, for instance, will become... When I think that is actually a motivator for people, that people think, well, why shouldn't you be accountable? You know, why don't you answer questions on your conduct? These people are in public office. They're using public money. It's not their money. And I think, for instance, the government not delivering an integrity commission in this term of parliament will be a problem for them in certain parts of the electorate because people do care about integrity. And this is our last. Thank you so much for coming along and boiling sorry, to death sorry. with us. It's actually not a question, so sorry. Um, <laughs> my name's Mitch. I'm a not-so-young trans non-binary person and I just wanted to say that going into that first week of Parliament this year, I hadn't quite expected that the debate around the Religious Discrimination Bill would end up about trans kids and there was a couple of days there which was really difficult to sort of realise that but I do want to say thank you to both the ABC, to particularly ABC Queer but also the two pollies here to say that by the end of that week to know that our parliament had turned around and said, no, we're not going to engage in a partisan fight over that. It was nice as a young, uh, like queer Australian to realise that there were people in our parliament that were prepared to say, no, we're not gonna do that. So thank you. You know what? On that issue, um, I realised at that point, and Trent realised, that what was happening here is this is a big community, there's a lot of letters in that acronym, and what was happening here was, hey, gay people, now that we've normalised you, now that you're part, you know, you're, you've become more mainstream, and we all know as gay people, anyone who's gay in the room and identifies gay, um, that was a hard road, you're going to be looked after kick that one, that other category down the road. And I thought it was very, very uh, meaningful to watch politicians like Trent and others say all of us together um, and that the meaning of actually excluding a group, also the most vulnerable group that we know have the worst outcomes based on all of the statistics, seemed incredibly cruel and it was important for everyone to be held to account on that. So my job was not to advocate, but to say, why would you do this to the most vulnerable group in our community? And now it'll be interesting, you know, to see when that change is delivered, because I think trans kids are really, really feeling it very strongly in schools right now. And it's on all of us with more privilege to not allow that to happen. 100% agree. I'm sorry you had to go through that. I was very conscious every time I hit went on air every night that I was talking about people almost as a third person um, and I wondered how people like you were going. Um, it's great to know. See why we like him so much? <laughs> you are a lovely, lovely man and I'm saying goodbye to the party room. Thank you very much for coming.